0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is a Design for Living Big Book OA workshop. My name is Dana P. I am a compulsive overeater at Bulimic in California, and I'm your chairperson for this portion of the, the workshop. Today we're delighted to have both Janet and Melissa joining us from um, New York. Um, thank you so much. Over the next few hours, they'll be sharing their experience, strength, and hope in Overeaters and Pilates focused on the first four chapters of the AA Big Book. To open this workshop, let us have a moment of quiet meditation, followed by the serenity prayer in the plural form. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I would now like to introduce Janet uh, to the group and good morning. Actually, it's afternoon for you, Janet. Good afternoon,
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Um, I'll just say a few quick words about myself because I'd rather spend more time talking about God and the steps. But just so you know that I belong belong here. Um, I first, I began binging when I was a kid, I remember obsessing about the crackers they were serving in preschool. How pathetic is that? But, you know, I know a lot of you have done the same thing. So no laughter. Um, I went to my first OA meeting actually when I was in high school. I was 15 and I was already a full blown compulsive eater. I spent my next seven years in OA binging and getting worse. I became bulimic You know, I made myself throw up so that I wouldn't gain too much weight. And my bulimia was so severe that after seven years in Overeaters Anonymous, at my worst, I was making myself throw up six times a day. I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the damage I heaped on it. Um, I was an incredibly lonely person. I could be here with all 104 of you and feel like I was the only person on the planet. I made up crazy, extreme lies to get attention, such as pretending I was mugged, taking a razor and slashing myself and saying I'd been raped, going to the hospital for a fake rape exam and taking the penicillin that the nice nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. I mean, I was a total mess physically, spiritually, and mentally. Now let's talk about the book. Okay, um, I just want to go to the forward to the second edition, just for one line. And it says, since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. That means a miracle on a big scale, not just like Moses, you know, part in the Red Sea. That's one miracle, a wholesale miracle. That means all 107 of us sitting here can have a miracle. And that means all the 10,000, 100,000, however many people there are in OA, in AA can have this miracle. So they want to whet our appetite for it by doing what's normally done, a 12-step call. So they have this guy named Bill And he was one of the two founders of AA. And so they tell his story. I'm actually not going to spend too much time on his story because it's pretty much all of our stories, except he used alcohol and we used food. Um, And we'll get into more of the kind of nitty gritty when we do the later chapters. But a few things I wanna point out. Um, On page one, Bill says, He first started drinking when things were great. He was going off to war and everyone was throwing parades. There was love, applause, war. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. Then he goes, and you know, war isn't all that fun. And he says, I was lonely. And again, turned to liquor. He turned to liquor when things were good and he turned to liquor when things were bad. And what that teaches us is that we didn't binge because life sucked or because life was great and we were trying to sabotage ourselves because we had some psychological self-hate. We binged because we couldn't not binge. We binged because we had an illness. Just like when I had a cold, I couldn't not sneeze as an unrecovered compulsive eater, I couldn't not binge and neither could Bill. So let's talk about um, Bill a little bit. He gets worse and I'm gonna jump to page five where it says, where he crossed the line, where liquor ceased to be a luxury and it became a necessity. And later on, um, we will talk about where it says on page 24, At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. So liquor was no longer something fun he could do at parties, it was something he couldn't not do. And what happens then if it's a necessity? Then we need to be rescued. It's like we're in an undertow and we need to be pulled out. So. When I was reviewing this chapter today, I saw in it seven things that Bill tried that didn't work. So I'm just going to go through these seven things that didn't work. On page five, he made a commitment. He says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. Shortly afterwards, I came home drunk. Commitment alone won't do it because lack of commitment isn't our problem. Lack of power is our problem. If I commit to run the 100-yard dash in three seconds and I really want to do it, it's not lack of commitment. I don't have the power to do that. And on page six, So number one is lack of commitment. Number two things Bill tried, lack of a plan. He said, I told my, um, he's in the bar getting drunk. And he said, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. His plan was, um, I'll start tomorrow. Um, I always had that plan, right? I'll start tomorrow or Monday or the first of the month or the first of the week. It was always in the future, a plan, but again, doesn't work because no power. The third thing that Bill tried was remorse, if he felt badly enough. He says the remorse, horror, and hopelessness are unforgettable. And what is remorse? It's when we feel badly about something that we've done. And back in the doctor's opinion, it talks about what happens with remorse. Um, It calls people who are over remorseful, psychopaths actually. They are over remorseful and make many resolutions but never decision. What does that even mean? To be remorseful, make resolutions and not a decision. Well, remorse means to feel bad about something, right? We feel bad and we make a resolution. I will never pick up that box of fill in the blank again. I will never do whatever binge thing I was doing. That's a resolution, but not a decision. What's what's the difference? Well, the decision that our book talks about is step three a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understand him. Because then I'm not working on my power. I'm working on God's. The fourth thing that Bill had is he had desire. But he said, my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Desire to stop without spiritual help doesn't work. Again, if I desire to run the 100-yard dash in three seconds, and I really want it, it's not going to make me do it. The fifth thing that Bill tried was self-knowledge. He got some answers. He talked to some people, and he said, surely this was the answer, self-knowledge, but it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. Isn't it weird how we think that knowledge will fix us, that if we understand why we became compulsive eaters, or what the exact right food plan is, or, you know, understand, that will help. But, I mean, if I had cancer, and I understood how I got the cancer somehow, and I understood that chemo was the solution, well, that's all great but unless I take the chemo or whatever the treatment is, I'm not going to get better because lack of knowledge isn't my problem. Okay, the sixth thing on Bill's list was fear. Page eight, he says, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. The big book has a paragraph on fear in the chapter, How It Works. And it describes fear as an evil and corroding thread. Well, if something is evil, how can I expect it to help me? If our solution is God, who is all loving and all good, evil can't be any part of a solution. So this, if you don't lose weight, you'll have a heart attack. Or if you don't lose weight, you'll never get married. Or if you don't lose weight or stop dinging or stop throwing up, fill in the blank. It doesn't work. And then the last thing that seems like it would work, but it didn't work for Bill, and it certainly didn't work for me, was just hitting bottom alone. Page eight. Oh, he hits bottom. He says, no words can tell of the loneliness and, and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions, I had met my match, I had been overwhelmed, alcohol was my master. Bill had a first step, but he still drank again. Huh, how could that be? Um, But sometimes we think that unfortunately, my first six, seven years in OA, I would say, I can't stop, I know I'm powerless. And people would say, great, you've admitted you're powerless, now here's a food plan, follow it. Again, it's like going to a doctor and the doctor saying, here's a CAT scan that proves you have cancer. Now that you see it and you admit you're powerless over cancer and it's making your life unmanageable, now go home and make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Well, of course that doesn't work. It didn't work for us and it, doesn't, it didn't work for Bill. So there was Bill. He had a first step and he was hopeless. And look at these illness symptoms, loneliness, despair, a bitter morass of self-pity, illness symptoms, but then enter God and a preview of that um, in the next paragraph, he says how dark it is before the dawn, but he didn't know this, but he says, I was soon to be catapulted catapulted you know that reminds me of like someone coming out of a cannon at a circus catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence I was to know happiness peace and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes guys recovery is progressive the same way that the illness is progressive so here's Bill sitting at home not knowing that he's about to be catapulted. Notice he doesn't catapult himself. He doesn't save himself. Now enter our hero, Ebby, who's part of God's search and rescue mission for Bill. So there's Bill sitting at home in New York. Ebby doesn't even live in New York, but God just decided that Ebby was gonna be part of that team that was gonna be in God's search and rescue mission for Ebby. So Ebby calls up Bill and says, hey, buddy, I'm coming to New York. And um, what does Bill think? He thinks, great, we can drink together. Now, Ebby doesn't say to him, Bill, I have something to talk to you about. Get sober for 48 hours, and then we'll have a conversation. He goes to see Bill, even though he knows Bill's planning on drinking with him. So he knocks on the door. And the door opens and Bill looks at him. I'm on page nine. And he says, something is different. It's inexplicable. He's Ebby, but he's not Ebby. It's almost like, I guess if there's a caterpillar and then it's a butterfly, it's not a caterpillar anymore. So Bill is looking at a butterfly and Ebby's voice is coming out. And he says, okay, what's all this about? You know, clearly something's going on. And does he say, well, let me hand you a not drinking plan or let me tell you about these meetings? Nope. He just says, I've got religion. Straight up, God is the answer. And Bill's like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. He was aghast. He's like, okay, he was an alcoholic crackpot before. Now, is he a religious crackpot? And he's like, okay, but I'll listen. Let, let's hear this rant. But Ebby didn't rant. He didn't rant. He was calm and he was loving. And, you know, Melissa and I always say that the environment to create for someone to recover in, for someone to be receptive in, is love and correct information. Love without correct information will get you where I was for six years. There were people who cared about me. They didn't, they didn't tell me the right thing. They didn't tell me to pick up the book. Correct information without love just makes people terrified to be honest. Love and correct information. So here's Ebby given Bill that, and he just tells a story. He said, I was about to be committed for alcoholic insanity Two guys came to court and they said, the judge, give us a chance. We think we can make, have this guy do certain things and stop drinking. What were the things? A simple religious idea, faith, and a practical program of action works. Trust and rely on God, clean house, and help others. That's it. That's what this program boils down to. Ebby did it. Two months ago. So he went through all the steps. They didn't have them 12 steps then. They had fewer steps, but the same, the same idea starting out admitting we're powerless, ending up making amends, and then having a spiritual awakening. Two months later, there he is, 12 step in Bill. No time requirement. The requirement was just, did you do the work? And Bill says, he'd come to pass his experience along to me. If I cared to have it, top of page 10. I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. We get interested when we're hopeless, right? Before I was hopeless, no one could tell me anything. I knew everything. It was only when I realized I'm on a runaway train with no brakes and there's no light at the end of the tunnel that I was willing to do whatever it took. So now Bill um, starts hearing about God, and he's listening. He's not thrilled about it, but he's listening. Um, Bill believed in an in, in impersonal God. said, well, okay, there's precise and immutable law, I guess like you know the law of gravity. You drop something, it falls to the earth. He says, okay, so there has to be a spirit of the universe behind it all, but um, that's as far as I'm going to go. And he said, when people talk about a personal God of love, of superhuman strength and direction, he got mad. And the next paragraph gives us a clue as to why he didn't like it. And he said, okay, about religion, I adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult, the rest I disregarded. Well, if I want to live life on self will run riot, it's easy to think that there's some impersonal force that created gravity and, you know, the seasons and the sunrise and all that, but a God who wants certain things out of me, who wants me to love the way that he loves, who wants to rewire my heart to be more like him, which means I have to stop telling lies. I have to stop putting myself first you know what, maybe it's easier to just not believe in God. And that's where he was. Um, but then Bill had another legitimate question. In 21st century terms, it would be something like this. If there was a God, how could he allow human trafficking? How could he allow cancer? How could he allow COVID-19? Um, and that's what Bill said, he said, Well, there were wars, you know, there were religious disputes, burnings, chicanery. He says, it makes me sick. And then listen to what he says. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. That's a pretty strong statement. But if you think about things like human trafficking, ah, you can kind of understand where Bill was coming from. And what did Abby do? Did he sit there and have like this whole biblical or theological discussion with him convincing, well, you know, God's smarter than we are and all that. He didn't. He just said, Bill, I don't know. All I know is when I gave my life to God and started living the way that I thought that he wanted me to, God removed my desire to drink. That's really all I know says my will failed me I was about to be locked up then see after he admitted defeat then this is what Ebby says I had in effect been raised from the dead again notice the passive raised he didn't raise himself taken from the scrap heap he didn't take himself to a level of life better than the best he had ever known that's what he said he didn't need to debate. Remember, we've resigned from the debating society because it doesn't work. And then, Ebby says, has this power originated in me? He says, no. And Bill looks at him and said, yeah, There before, there was no more power in him than there is in me right now. And that's zero. The power isn't in something inside us, like, you know, Star Wars, the force waiting to be awakened it's God. It's something that comes into us when we give our lives to God. And what does Bill say? He says, that floored me. It began to look as though religious people. Now, I don't think he was talking Christian, Jewish, Buddha, like that. He was talking about people who believed in God, and not just a God who was in charge of the weather and gravity, but a God who was interested in us. These religious people are right. Here was something at work in a human heart, which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised. He says, never mind the musty past. You know, Moses parting the Red Sea, things like that. Yeah, that's irrelevant. That's not going to make me stop binging. Here said a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. So let's look at that. He says, here was something at work in the human heart, which had done the impossible. So rewiring a human heart is a miracle. And that's what this program is about. Wholesale miracles, changing our hearts so that we're not selfish, so that we're not dishonest, so that we're able to care about other people. And he just says, it doesn't matter the past. There's a miracle directly across the kitchen table we are supposed to be miracles for each other we are supposed to meet people and they're supposed to hear our story what we were like what happened and what happened is always the same or should be how we found god and what we're like now living in the solution happy joyous and free not every single day i mean we're human beings there are bad days um and not It's not that we never get angry or we never get sad, but something um, that I had read, and it was in a book that the founders of AA used to study. What happens is that our bounce back period gets smaller. So if I used to get mad and I would stay mad for three days, I can gauge my recovery. Am I better now? Do I stay angry for a shorter period of time than I did a few months ago? So, if now when I get angry, I can resolve it in 15 minutes, that is a miracle. And he says, there was Ebby. Um, he shouted, Great tidings. And great tidings means good news. Ebby shouted, Good news. And he says, Okay, my friend is much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. Top of page 12. His roots grasp a new soil. What a beautiful image. You know, before I was planted in the garden of self, right? Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of this illness, we're told in chapter five. I was planted in the garden of self. I need a root transplant. Luckily, God is in the gardening business. And that's what he did. He planted me in the garden of himself. And so that's what Bill is noticing. And he's saying, okay, I get it. But he still had some prejudices. And Ebby just said, you can choose your own concept of God. It doesn't have to be the one that your minister grandfather taught you. It doesn't have to be, you know, this one that you learned in Sunday school. Your own concept. And then Bill said, okay. And he said, growth could start there step two and we'll talk about that when we talk about the chapter we agnostics that's when we start getting power our problem is lack of power our solution is power remember bill took step one way back on page eight now on page 12 he's taking step two he's willing to believe in a power greater than himself and he's starting to get power and that's the foundation he builds on that we all build on And then there's something I noticed, a formula, how to get God to be concerned with me. He says, thus was I convinced God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. So my willingness to do the work turns on a switch that says, God, look at me, help me. And he does. My willingness enables God to come in and do start his renovation job in my heart. And then what's the first thing that Bill says happened when he became willing to go to any length and willing to believe. He says, scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. You know, and I think about what could ever be like on my eyes that blocks me. And generally I think of like cataracts, right? That's something that blocks someone from seeing it's in their eyes and it has to be removed. And he had pride and prejudice. But instead of going to an ophthalmologist, he goes to God and God removes it. And what is pride and prejudice? I think pride is um, two things, thinking of myself too much and thinking too much of myself. And what's prejudice? Thinking too little of others or thinking of others too little from his eyes bill no longer thought he was the cat's meow and that others were beneath him and suddenly he was interested in other people and he thinks about gosh when i was younger i wanted and needed god yep just like this and he was there but i blotted him out i put the scales back how again i'm on the top of page 13 by worldly clamors so how to block god Get too interested in worldly clamors, too interested in, um, later on in chapter four, it talks about what that is, worship of pomp, myself, and other things, things that distract me from God. And he says, God's presence was blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since how blind I had been. If I'm thinking of myself too much and thinking too much of myself, I am blind to the needs of others and to the presence of my creator. And then he went to the hospital because he was going through a genuine physical withdrawal. And there he did a third step. He offered himself to God as he understood him then. This our concept of God grows. What it is now, what what it is when we take our third step is going to grow and change. And he placed himself under God's care and direction. See so again, these twin things his care, faith, trusting and relying on God, and his direction works. We are the agents, God is the principle. God's in charge and we do his work. And we can do that when we believe that he's not this impersonal drill sergeant in the sky, but a loving father, creator who only cares about my well being. And then Bill did his inventory. Um, he realized he needed God and he said, I ruthlessly faced my sins. Ruthlessly, we are hard on ourselves. You know, so many times people tell us and we pay therapists thousands of dollars to tell us, oh, you're just too hard on yourself. You have to be easy on yourself. Mm -mm. I am hard on myself. So I'll give you an example of what this looks like. Um, There was someone lately this was recent. So this wasn't even 20 years ago when I was new in recovery. There was someone who did something that I thought wasn't very nice. And so I found myself thinking, I hope she binges. And I thought, but that was my thought. So I didn't say, well, I'm only human. And you know, of course, I'm going to have a bad thought every now and then. I called my sponsor. I admitted it. I confessed I was mean spirited. I went to God and I asked him to remove that defective character. And then I prayed and did a visualization picturing this person dancing with God. But I am hard on myself. And I I don't then say, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm not worthy of God's love. You know, the truth is God doesn't love us because we're worthy. He loves us because we're his kids. You know, so again, I don't spend time debating that myself. Am I worthy or not? It's just, okay, I did this wrong thing. I had this wrong thought. I need to clear it up. Otherwise, I can't really be useful. So we are hard on ourselves and we go to God, our newfound friend with a capital F, to remove our sins or as they're called now, defects of character. Um, Root and branch. The root is what's underground, what people don't see, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the branch. Branches are visible, our resentments, are fears, are harms to others. God, take it all. And then he just gives us um, some advice. He tells us what he did. He got new thinking as a result of surrendering to God. Bottom of page 13, he says, common sense became uncommon sense right it's like one of the promises we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us and then he gives us a formula what to do when we're not sure how to handle a problem says we sit quietly asking which means praying whenever it's asking and referring to god it means praying asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. And then Ebby promised him when he did all this, he would enter upon a new relationship with his creator. And isn't that the goal of this book after all? A new relationship with our creator. And have the elements of a way of living, which answered all our problems. So it's not just, I have a great relationship with God and I just keep my head in the clouds all the time with him and who cares about what's happening on earth. Nope, I also get you know, to know how to live and how to deal with problems because problems, of course, still come up. And what are the requirements? Belief in the power of God, not just belief in God, but in God's power, plus willingness, honesty. Guys, if we're not gonna be honest, we shouldn't even bother trying to work these steps because they won't work. And humility to do this. And he says, okay, it's simple, but yeah, it's not easy. And a price has to be paid on page 14, destruction of self-centeredness, a root transplant. The old roots have to be destroyed. He says, these were like crazy new principles, revolutionary and drastic is the words he used. And he had a full-on spiritual experience. He said, God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. Um, so a lot of us don't have that kind of mountaintop experience. That's okay. In the appendix, they talk about a spiritual experience and spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening is slower where suddenly we realize, Oh yeah, that used to get me mad. Now it doesn't. And other people say, you doing something different because you're like, Different. Um, But in either case, a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening, the obsession with food is removed. And bottom of page 14, what I think is one of the most critical um, paragraphs in the book passages, he says, Faith without works was dead. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic or the compulsive eater. For if an alcoholic, Compulsive eater failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be indeed dead, indeed. So let's unpack that. I would think that the line would go, if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through much prayer and meditation, but it doesn't say that. For people like us, the way that we enlarge our spiritual life is through work and self-sacrifice for others. What's a self-sacrifice? Well, by definition, a sacrifice means I have to be giving something up, right? Um, If I'm really rich and I write a check for 50 bucks, That's not a sacrifice. But if someone is really poor, that same check may be a huge self-sacrifice. For me, the sacrifice usually comes by the way of time that I want for myself, that I give up for the good of another person. So giving something up that I want in order to benefit another person, that is critical for recovery. And it says, if we don't do that, we can't survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. So it's guaranteed we are going to have trials and low spots. And it says, if we don't do this, we're gonna drink. And then what good is our faith? So there's Bill and he says, um, he was plagued for a year and a half by waves of self-pity and resentment. So it doesn't mean that we'll never have self-pity, we'll never have resentment. And he says, When all other measures failed, when his inventories didn't work, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Work with other compulsive eaters saves the day when nothing else does. And he says, it is a design for living that works in rough going. That's just how God made people like us, that we need to be helpful to others in order to stay sober ourselves. Just like if I have pneumonia, God designed my body that penicillin is the cure. If I'm thinking about food too much, God designed my soul so that working with others is is a cure. Once I've resolved my resentments and fears. Can't can't skip that part. And then he just goes on with some promises. Bottom of 15, he says the joy of living we really have even under pressure and difficulty. We can be happy even when things are bad. He went through a war. We've just gone through over a year of COVID and Melissa and I just say, you know, this has been in some ways the best year and a half of our lives because we've just had the opportunity with Zoom to just help a lot of people and grow spiritually, the joy of living, even when there's difficulty. And he says, there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery which hasn't been overcome among us. The problems may not go away, but God will give us what we need to rise above to deal with them. And then it just talks about how lovely it is to have these gatherings. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 people. Wouldn't Bill be happy now looking at the 106 of us? He goes on and finishes and says, there's a vast amount of fun about it all. Um, but underneath, faith has to work all the time in whatever we do, faith working 24 hours a day in and through us, or we perish. And he closes by saying, we don't feel we need to look any further for utopia. We don't have to wait, you know, to head for heaven. We have it with us right here and now each day my friends simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men, and I know that I am very blessed and very grateful to be part of that circle, and with that I pass.